Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm flying solo and I'm flying solo with a great subject because I get to play with ancient history. So I'm never depressed when it comes down to flying solo and something like this. But my guest today is Brett Devereaux, whose research specialises in the Roman Republic, which we haven't done in a long time, actually, uh, in the third and second centuries military. And we're actually going to be talking about some military history today and specifically the Roman army. Hello, Brett. Hello. Great to be here. I'm excited, as I am when it comes down to ancient history, because we get to do something that I did at university and then I can kind of get past on a basic conversation with. So (laughs) we've been actually chatting probably for the past 10 minutes before we actually record uh, about random things like Vespasian, because he's cool. He's funny. (laughs) He's so funny. I love him. So that I will tell you to this day, that quote of when he's dying is the most funniest thing ever. Like, who lays there and says, now I'm becoming a god? I mean, we all know yeah. because he eventually, you know, does become a, a form of a deity. I guess that's the way you'd say yeah. it. So, uh, yeah, Vespasian. I think we need to do a podcast on Vespasian because he's just he's a badass and he's funny. <laughs> he's hilarious. But... We're not talking about that today. We're talking about the Republic, which I'm really rusty on, so bear with me. I've pulled out my Roman Republic book by Michael Crawford. So, Michael Crawford, if you do not help me today, I'll be very upset. (laughs) If you're not listening, then don't worry about it. So, (laughs) Anyway, let's start with the first question. So, we're talking about the second century in Rome. When we usually think of Rome, a lot of people don't think about the Republic. They see off the TV, they see emperors, and they see what Rome was like as an empire, under ruled under an emperor, however you want to say it, rather than the Republic, rather than being governed by the people, in theory, than one man. So mm-hmm. let's talk about Rome in this century, so the second century. It's not really that impressive, <laughs> is it, at this time period? Why isn't it so impressive? Right. So the the Rome of the the third and second centuries is is not yet the dominant Mediterranean power. It's a major player, but it's not the biggest player yet. Um, Rome's great conquests are going to start happening um, through the third and second century, and so 
if we're looking at, at, at the third century, again, 200s BC, Rome is one of really five major great powers in the Mediterranean. Um, Rome, by this point, has managed to conquer um, what the Romans consider Italy, which is peninsular Italy south of the Po, not including Sicily, not including northern Italy. That's their base. Um, the next of the sort of great powers is Carthage, operating out of North Africa in what today would be Tunisia. Carthage controls much of the coast of North Africa, about a third of Sicily, and um, some of the coast of Spain. Carthage is a great naval power. And then in the east, you have the fragments of Alexander the Great's empire, right? Alexander the Great kicks it in 323, dies young. Um, famously, uh, according to our sources, his last words when his generals asked him to whom he willed the empire was toi kratistoi, to the strongest. Um, Y'all fight each other for it, which is a very Alexander the Great thing to do. Um, his generals over the next decade assassinate every living member of Alexander the Great's family and then begin killing each other over his empire. That eventually coalesces into three the three largest fragments. Um in Egypt, um, one of Alexander's generals, Ptolemy I, makes himself pharaoh. That creates the Ptolemaic kingdom. The Ptolemies are the wealthiest power in the Mediterranean. Um, by far, in terms of state revenue, they are rich, loaded. Um, Egypt is a very wealthy area. In what today would be Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, and parts of Turkey, one of Alexander's bodyguards, Seleucus, um, Seleucus I Nicator, um, he seizes control over that large area, extending into what is today Iran, the largest single unit. His descendants are the Seleucids. And then the final sort of smallest and poorest fragment is the actual traditional Macedonian kingdom where Alexander was from, um, north of Greece. Um, and here, um, the descendants of Antigonus, um, another one of Alexander's generals, set up their kingdom there. So we call them the Antigonids. In terms of like, putting these powers in kind of relative order to give a sense of like the population and size, the Romans are probably in control of something like three to 4 million people in this period. Um, Carthage is about the same size in terms of control, maybe a little bigger. The Antigonids are a little smaller, probably around 3 million people. Egypt is about the same in population, um, but Egyptian revenues are probably six times Roman revenues because Holy Egypt shit. is so wealthy. Wow. Yeah, so the, uh, a scholar, Michael Taylor, has done these estimates, and he figures annual Roman revenues in this period are about – he's doing currency equivalents, but equivalent to 12 million Attic drachma per year, whereas Egypt is pulling in 75 million. Oh, that is a, that is a big difference. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. Um, and then population-wise, the Seleucid Empire is enormous, somewhere between 15 and 20 million people. So it's five or six times larger in population than any other. Seleucid revenues are probably 50, 60 million Attic drachma per year. Um, so they're the runner-up in revenues and the clear standout in, in population. So Rome is a major player in this environment, but it's not the biggest power by any means and you wouldn't necessarily tag the Romans as being like, these are the guys that are gonna, that are gonna come out ahead. Um, you know, that's roughly the situation in say 220 by really the 150s. Um, the Romans have, 
Well, by 146, the Romans have destroyed Carthage. They have destroyed the Antigonid kingdom. They have crippled the Seleucids, and they have turned the Ptolemaic Empire into a vassal state. They have cleared the board. Um, and so, so we go in this period from a sort of a system of five equal powers to Rome has dominated all of them um, really quite quickly um, and really quite shockingly so. And this makes it a really interesting period to study. Uh, Rome is at war almost constantly in the third and second century. Rome is only at peace for eight of these years. How long does it actually take for them to conquer all of these nation states? So Rome doesn't always immediately exercise political control over the areas that they defeat. So, for instance, the Romans deliver the sort of catastrophic defeat to the Seleucids in 190 at the Battle of Magnesia. They then make a humiliating peace treaty and the Seleucid kingdom sort of stutters onward. Um, all the way into the, the 60s BC, when it will finally be abolished by fiat, by uh, the Roman general Pompey Magnus. Um, he, he just sort of gets rid of it because why not? Um, the Ptolemaic kingdom um, is massively weakened. They're smart enough never to fight the Romans, but when the Romans are all that's left, they're in trouble. Um, obviously, they kick around all the way. The last Ptolemaic pharaoh is Cleopatra. Um the Romans fight their first war with Carthage in 264 over Sicily, their second war with Carthage in 218 um, over basically the whole of the Western Mediterranean, um, and then a third final conflict with a very much weakened Carthage um, that ends in 146 when the Romans destroy the city. Uh, so we're kind of looking at for all of these nations, because obviously there's different time periods that these nations are being fought mm -hmm. over. So we're talking about, yeah. let's say, what, 150-odd years, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. That's not bad for conquering literally, was it five other nations? Yeah, and a, and a host of smaller peoples. I mean, basically the whole of the Mediterranean basin. Wow. Okay. So uh, who is the person that sparks all of this, actually? I'm going completely, by the way, off topic for the questions because I, <laughs> I'm quite, I've really got no, I mean, interested. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, that's, that's fair. So there isn't like Rome isn't operating under one singular leader in this period. It's a republic. Um, so it's a sort of power sharing arrangement among the elite. Um, the Romans have elections to decide their chief magistrates. Uh, the people who run from those elections are drawn from a relatively small number of important families. Um, but then the common people, the common citizenry gets to vote to decide, you know, which rich guys get to hold office and, and which don't. Um, and instead, it's the collective direction of the Senate, which is a body of 300 former office holders. Um, which is really directing Roman policy in this period. Now, there are a lot of structural reasons why the Romans are aggressive and expansionist in, in this period. Part of it has to do with the political system. If you want to make a political career in Rome, you want military glory. The, the key office here is the consulship. This is the highest office in the Roman Republic. Um, there are always two consuls at any given time, and they command Rome's main armies. Um, you have other lesser commanders that command subsidiary armies, but these command the main Roman armies. They're elected. The thing is, uh, you run for the consulship, you get a single year's term. So if you want to rack up military glory, if you want to be a great conqueror, you have to do it right away. And so no one who's elected consul is going to be happy with like, congratulations, you won the election, but we're at peace this year. 
Like that's not going to fly. And likewise, nobody's going to decide, well, I should go on. No one's going to want to say I should go on the defensive this year and let the guy elected next year win the war. Like, no, 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 no. In fact, this becomes a major problem for the Romans in their second war with Carthage. This is the war with Hannibal. Um, because Hannibal is a sort of once-in-a-generation military talent. He rolls a Carthaginian army, um, which is mostly made up of mercenaries. He's recruited from Spain and Gaul, southern France. He rolls this army um, into Italy, and he is just smashing Roman armies left, right, and center. He wins three major victories in a row. Um, the Romans are really on the back foot. and And you have this sort of political contest that is happening between Roman leaders in the in the Senate, um, um, particularly um, Quintus Fabius Maximus Cunctator, um, the delayer, who are like, what we should do is we should stop fighting pitched battles with Hannibal that we lose, and we should bottle him up and try and win the war where Hannibal isn't, um, which is the strategy Rome eventually adopts. But they're like constantly that. running into them. Eventually. You say eventually adopts. So it takes them how long to adopt this policy? Um, so they confront Hannibal in 218 at the Trebia and lose. They then confront him again in 217 at Lake Trasimene and lose an entire army. Oh, Jesus Christ. And then in the winter from 217 to 216, they make Fabius dictator and he holds back. But then as we get into 216, the Romans get so antsy with this defensive strategy that the new consuls come in at Tarantius Varro, and they're like, we're going to let this guy go for it. And so the Romans raise a, an extra big army. Usually each consul has their own army separately. They're like, we're going to put these two together, and then we're going to double them again. So instead of a normal 20,000-man field army, it's going to be an 80,000-man field army. And then we're going to show Hannibal what for. And the result in 216 is the Battle of Cannae. Hannibal um, lures this army in, encircles it, and destroys it. Oh, dear God. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, this is it. This was that moment. This 18,000 nope. men are going to finally conquer Hannibal. No. Why are you no. doing this to me? <laughs> no, no. The Romans lose about 60,000 of those men. Oh, Jesus. Um, that's more than what? That's nearly three quarters of the army. Well, that, that's three quarters of the army that was raised. Now, the Roman has a, we'll talk about this, Rome has a conscription-based military, so they draft more guys. Right, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Right. <laughs> I'm completely off topic. Let me get us back no, no, on this topic. Is fair. Because yeah, I'm getting all excited about these things. But anyway. if, you want, if you want this really mind-bending, right, Rome's war with Hannibal and Carthage, the Second Punic War, it begins in 218, and it will only end in 201. So the Romans being drafted for the final armies of this war were not born when it started. I'm a bit dumbfounded. I don't know if yeah, the silence that I should have given And it, it isn't. And this isn't, I want to be clear, this isn't like, like the Hundred Years' War where it's like on again, off again, whatever. No, 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 no. This is 18 years of high-intensity conflict. Hannibal is in Italy pillaging the countryside the whole time. You need to come back. We need to discuss this 18-year war because I really... It's not even the longest Roman war with Carthage. Rome's first war with Carthage starts in 264 and ends in 241. Jesus. Right. No, 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 no. Okay. (laughs) Let's stick to what we've got because I want you to come back and we need to do these battles. Do do the Punic Wars. Yeah, okay. I need to know why do they keep fucking... (laughs) 
basically why are they losing <laughs> this makes no sense they're supposed to be the strong military power and they just they win the war yeah after how many years a few exactly so I'm as many saying, as it takes i just oh my god i just yeah i didn't do military history so um in in university i kind of did more of the social side occasionally a bit of politics but so I'm kind of interested in knowing a little bit more about the wars. So let's, okay, okay, right. So we've done, we have touched on this a little bit, uh, managing to sweep away their opponents eventually after 18 years. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, is, <laughs> here, here, it's a very <laughs> slow sweep. <laughs> it's very, exactly. Oh my God. Okay. So there's very slow sweeping. You're going to say it's not down to using more men because Chris has just thrown this question out. Is it down to using more men? It's First of all, I can tell you it's not because that's what you're going to tell me, right? Yeah, it's not just more men, though I do want to stress that the, the Romans do have more men. That's um, part of how they withstand all of these defeats. So it is not a question of, of course, raw population. There are not more Romans. Um, what is different first is that the Romans can draw militarily on a much larger slice of their resource base. That includes people. It also includes economic resources um, as well. Um, in terms of people, um, and to give a sense of this, the Romans do somewhat unusually account in 225 BC, conveniently just a few years before this gigantic war, um, to figure out how many men they have liable for conscription. And we'll get into this, but it's a two-tier system. You have Roman citizens, and then there are also all of these other Italian communities that are not Roman citizens, but that Rome has subjugated that also have to serve in Rome's armies. And Rome euphemistically calls these guys the allies, the Socii. They're not allies, they're subjects, but Rome is being polite. And they do account in 225, and they figure that between Rome and their allies – they have around 700,000 men of military age who are liable for conscription. And to be liable for conscription, you had to have enough wealth and property to afford your own weapons and armor. Um, that wasn't a super high bar, but you did need to meet it because the Roman state doesn't like issue you a sword. You need to buy a sword Hold on. when you're drafted. Wait a minute. If we put this into modern terms, it's like, hi, sorry, you have to go buy your own guns. We're not going to yes. provide you with anything. We're but not going, correct. We're not going to provide you with any equipment, any Kevlar vests, or your no. binoculars, or your million pounds worth of equipment. Yes, go buy it yourself. <laughs> yeah, the the law the law requires you to go buy these things if you're drafted, and then when you're drafted, you have to go get them. Uh, we don't care how you get them, but you have to go get them. I love that. Um, we don't care how you go and get them. So basically, you can just go and steal them. They just don't. I care. mean, you could though. Though I mean, you know, theft is 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 not legal. But but you know, beg, borrow, buy, whatever. Um, you know, the the Roman state doesn't care how you get them. It just that you have to. And for Roman citizens, they're responsible for equipping themselves. Um, for the allies. It is the allied community's responsibility. So, like, I don't know, like uh, uh, the let's say the Polygnians. Um, it is the responsibility of the Polygnians with their own governing structures, their own local government, to figure out how they're going to handle that problem. 
whether the community buys the equipment or the individuals do or whatever. The Romans don't care. So you guys figure it out. Um, so that limits who's liable for conscription. But they have about 700,000 men liable for conscription in Italy, which is just an enormous number. And it allows them to sort of take these hits and keep coming. Um, what's wild is, so we talked about these defeats. Between 218 and 216, the Romans probably lose somewhere between 80 and 100,000 men fighting Hannibal. That does not cause them to like lower their expectations. Instead, Rome responds by raising one army to be in southern Italy to bottle Hannibal up. They're going to send another army to northern Italy to fight the Gallic communities in what the Romans called Cisalpine Gaul, which is like around Venice, that have supported Hannibal. A third army is going to be operating in southern Italy because some of Rome's allies have switched over to Hannibal's side and the Romans are going to crush them. They're going to send two more armies into Spain to destroy the Carthaginian, to capture Carthage's empire there. And they send another army into Sicily, which the Romans by this point control, because the Syracusans in Sicily are getting ideas, and the Romans would like to disabuse them of that notion. And then they're going to send the navy into the Adriatic, because the Antigonid Macedonian kingdom thinks that now is a cute time to sort of uh, uh, muscle in on Rome's interests there. Um, in 212... Rome has 185,000 men under arms. That's a lot of people. Split between all of these armies. And for relative comparison, Hannibal crossed over the Alps with 20,000 men. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And the maximum deployment for the Seleucid Empire, which, as you recall, population-wise is the biggest, the largest their army ever gets is 80,000 men. So in theory, the Romans do have more. This actually lead me to my next question quite nicely, because if they're not winning, let me rephrase that. If they're losing to Hannibal with 80 to a thousand, was 80 to a thousand? 80,000. Yeah. Okay. If that's what they're losing to Hannibal with Hannibal only having 20,000. Yeah. He's up to 40 by the time of Cani because he's recruited more guys from Cisalpine Gaul. So he's not. He's still got less. He's still got less. Oh, yeah. He's still got less. So he's winning with less men. He is. Even though the, I'm assuming the Romans have better equipment. They do. Okay, And they're still losing. Um, yeah. So Hannibal is a clever tactician. Um, the way he wins at Cannae is he takes advantage of the way that the Roman legions fight. You know, other generals have their clever flanking maneuvers and what have you. As far as the Romans are concerned, the quickest way to an enemy's rear is through their front. So, like, Roman armies are very much, you just kind of grind your way forward. 
And so what Hannibal does is he weakens the center of his army, he strengthens his flanks, and he lets the Roman army sort of push itself into the bag and then encircles it and is able to destroy it that way. Oh, that's um, And so, oh yeah, Hannibal is, like I said, I mean, by and large, the Romans defeat Carthaginian armies more often than not. Hannibal is this once-in-a-generation military talent that can just keep fooling Roman generals. Um, though his luck does eventually run out, and he loses against um, Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus at the Battle of Zama in 202. Um, it, it takes them a while. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he's still doing pretty well with his 20 to 40 compared to 80 yeah, to yeah. Out, you know, so, 100. Yeah, yeah. No, this is fair. What The problem, of course, is that Hannibal can't be everywhere. So Hannibal ends up in southern Italy. What the Romans do um, is they assign an army after after Cannae, after the disasters, like, let's not do that again, to basically shadow Hannibal. And the way ancient logistics work, um, Hannibal can't gather supplies. That limits where he can move. So Hannibal advances, the Romans will back off. They'll stay close enough that he can't supply himself locally, and so he has to retreat back into the areas he has better control over. They then use that to bottle him up in southern Italy, and then proceed to disassemble the Carthaginian Empire everywhere else. So they wipe out Hannibal's other allies in Italy. Um, these are these had been Rome's allies that had defected. They crush Hannibal's supporting Gallic tribes in Cisalpine Gaul. They disassemble the Carthaginian Empire in Spain. It takes years. They're conquering their way down the coast of Spain over the course of years. And then eventually the Romans send an army against Carthage itself in North Africa at which point Hannibal is finally recalled to command the defense. And it's that process that takes years, and the Romans are just grinding the Carthaginians down. Um, and the Romans win most of those battles. Um, I, I don't want to give the impression that the Romans lose most of the battles. The Romans win most of the battles against people not named Hannibal. And I, actually, I will note, the Romans win most of the battles against people named Hannibal. Hannibal's a really common Carthaginian name. Um, but they, they, they lose the battles against that Hannibal over there. The um, Hannibal. The Hannibal, Hannibal Barca, we would say. But the Romans are sort of grinding this down. Um, that said, you're right. They do actually, the Romans have the better equipment. Um, it, it's better enough that after his initial victories, Hannibal, we're told, uses all of the captured Roman equipment to re-equip his elite troops, the African troops that he's actually brought from North Africa, the actual Carthaginians and army, he equips them completely in Roman style to the point where our sources are like, you could mis- you could have mistaken them for a Roman legion um, because he's got them completely in Roman kit because it's better. So that kind of gets us to, to equipment. So the Romans throughout this whole period show an incredible willingness to invest in more expensive equipment, especially for their infantry. Um, generally in ancient armies, how you are in society is how you fight. So cavalrymen are people who can afford horses. They're rich. Okay. But the infantry are usually the lower classes. This is true for the Romans as well. So Roman cavalrymen are drawn from the very wealthy Roman infantrymen are mostly what we would call small holding farmers, right? They have a little family farm. It's enough to feed their family. Probably not a lot more. Um, Nevertheless, these guys equip themselves, as we mentioned, so they might be willing to spend a little bit more on their own armor that is protecting their life. And and we can look at these sort of costs a few different ways. Um, now, here's where the sources are troublesome. 
no sort of prices for Roman equipment survive to us. The sources don't record how much a, like a helmet costs. Um, but one way we can look at this is, is, okay, how much metal is a soldier wearing on the battlefield? Because, um, you know, you have to forge all of this stuff by hand. Metal is really expensive in the ancient world. It's much more expensive than, you know, leather or wood or cloth. Um, and so, um, you know, the average, um, say, soldier in a Macedonian army, so Seleucid army or the Antigonid army or whatever, for their heavy infantry corps, their elite troops, carries about five kilograms of metal on him into battle between his weapons and his armor on average. Your average Gallic warrior is less, about two to three kilograms, um, these guys make up actually a pretty big portion of Hannibal's army. They're the cheap mercenaries he's using to sort of flesh out his force. By the contrast, the Romans are about eight kilograms per soldier. So they're carrying a lot more expensive metal. And a lot of this has to do with the Romans. And Polybius tells us this. Um, the Romans think like all of the heavy infantry should have some kind of metal body armor, um, which is pretty expensive. Wealthier Roman infantrymen um, have picked up what is in this period a brand new technology, chainmail, or we might say more correctly, mail. This is actually an armor that was invented by the Gauls, but in Gaul, only the ultra, ultra rich can afford it. Um, the Romans invest in this for relatively common soldiers. So this is, again, an armor of interlinked metal chains in a four-in-one pattern. They alternate riveted and solid rings that lock into each other. Um, making, Sorry to interrupt yeah. you on this. This is it's similar to what we would relate to as medieval chainmail. Almost identical. Okay. This is the armor does not change. Okay. Um, yeah, um, basically identical. And for a full shirt, you need something like forty thousand rings. So it's a lot of iron, and it's um, time consuming um, to put together. It takes. All on the order of 2,000 hours to assemble a male shirt. Hold um, on, to assemble just one? Just one. Okay, wow, that's incredible. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of time and effort. Um, and the Romans take this armor that really in, in Gaul was only for like the rich fancy pants on his horse, and they're like, yeah, we're going to have the mainstay of our infantry wear this stuff. Um, it's really effective, because it's a kind of metal, you're basically making a metal fabric. So it's very flexible. You can move in it very freely, but it is iron. So it's very hard to get a weapon through it. And, and the Romans use this a lot. The Romans also um, are willing to invest in weapons. The standard armament of a Roman infantryman, he has his sword, um, the famous gladius, in this case, the, the early form that we call the gladius hispaniensis, the Spanish sword. Um, the Romans are open that they adopted this from Spain. They got to Spain. They're like, these guys have some great swords. We're going to make our swords like that. And then the other thing that the Roman heavy infantryman carries is two heavy javelins. They're called, this is the pilum, plural is pila. And these two are expensive weapons. Um, they're designed to be armor and shield penetrating. And so whereas most javelins will have just a wooden haft and then a small iron tip on the top, what the Romans have is, is a heavier wooden haft, and then the iron tip is this long 30, 40, 50 centimeter long thin iron shank with a tip on the end of that. 
And the idea is that if your enemy like sees the javelin coming and he puts his shield up, the tip punches through the shield and the thin shank behind it is thinner than the hole the tip has made. And the, so the mass of the wooden haft is going to keep pushing this javelin forward and it's long enough that it will cross the space between the guy's shield and his body to strike him behind his shield. Um, so it's a nasty little javelin or Does nasty big javelin. Work? Yes. Um, yes, modern reenactors have reconstructed this and tested it, and it does function as described. Wow. Um, I would be actually and, terrified to, if I was on the battlefield to see one of those coming at me. Yeah, well, and the way the Romans do it, right, is, you know, Roman armies like to attack. They don't like to defend. So the Romans are going to come up at you. Um, the Roman army engages in, in three consecutive lines. So you're going to have the first line coming at you. And what the Romans are going to do is they're going to advance until they're about 20 yards or so, or 20 meters, your choice, um, about the same distance, away from you. And then that whole formation that's coming at you, it's about six men deep. Um, They're all going to throw the first of their pila at you. So you're going to get a shower of these heavy javelins coming in. And then they're going to charge. And on the run in the approach, they're going to throw the second of these heavy javelins at you just before they come in at point-blank range with their swords and then the very large Roman shield, the scutum, um, which is this sort of body shield that covers the Roman from knee to shoulder. You see these all the time, big rectangular shield. So, yeah, it's going to be a rough day for you. You're going to get two javelins in the face, and then the Roman is going to come in with this Spanish sword and try and gut. It's very effective. The Romans do tend to win their battles. Um, Again, Hannibal kind of uses this against the Romans. He knows they'll be aggressive, and so he uses it to lure them into traps. But for generals that aren't as skilled as Hannibal, this is is rough stuff. But it's an expensive way to fight. You need a lot of iron for those javelins, for these swords, for this armor. Um, uh, Roman helmets are also pretty heavy and stout, unusually so. And so it's, a we'd say, a material-intensive way of war. You need a lot of stuff. Um, on top of that, the Romans are also in the habit, Roman armies on the march build a fortified encampment every night when they stop. So at the end of the day, the Romans stop, they start building a fort, and you don't get to sleep until the fort's built. And in the morning, you disassemble the fort, and you bring it with you, and you build it again. And this way, the army always has a safe place to retreat to, and it's hard to ambush. But that means the Romans have to bring all sorts of construction equipment with them. And so our sources are repeatedly amazed. They're like, these Romans on the march, they don't just have their shields and their armor and their weapons. They've got picks and shovels and baskets and chains, and they're carrying the entrenching stakes that they'll make the wall of the fort out of with them as they move. And so, of course, all of this is resource intensive. It's expensive. And again, the way the Romans do this is that they expect these soldiers to show up to the muster when the army forms up with all their stuff. Um, And the the famous Roman tool is the Delabra, the Roman pickaxe. This is like the multi-purpose Roman entrenching tool they use for everything. So the Romans are carrying those too. Um, So it's a very expensive way of war. So this brings us nicely because you've just mentioned about resources. You've just mentioned how they're having to literally carry their whole camp with them. Yes. With such an expensive 
army with such expensive equipment and such a large army, we're talking about thousands of men, how are they resupplying? How are they supporting their armies? Yeah, so the the Romans are, are, as I think is coming out here, uncommonly both willing and able to pull resources into military activity. And a lot of this has to do with the structure of Roman control in Italy. So most empires, the way you set up, and this is how the Carthaginian Empire is set up. This is how the three Hellenistic successors of Alexander's empires are set up. The way it works is you have an imperial core that's relatively small that has conquered these areas, and it imposes tribute. It imposes taxes on these guys. And so you conquer people, and you make them pay you money. And then you use that money to fund military activity. But that imposes a lot of inefficiencies. People don't like to pay taxes, so you have to garrison these places. You need bureaucrats to assess the taxes. Those guys need to be paid. They're expensive. They have to be literate. And so you have inefficiencies in this money flow as you have this sort of system where you use an army to impose taxes on people, and then you use the taxes to pay the army, which imposes taxes, which pays the army, Um, what um, Carlos Noreña calls a military tributary complex. Um, use the military to generate the tribute and the tribute to pay the military. The Romans don't do this in Italy. Instead, um, when the Romans expand in Italy initially and they begin conquering their neighbors, um, the Romans follow what I jokingly refer with my students as the Goku model of imperialism. We beat you, therefore we are our friends. It's a Dragon Ball reference. So some listeners will get this, some listeners won't. It's fine. What Rome does when it defeats you in Italy, the Romans won't do this outside of Italy, but in Italy, um, is they impose a treaty on you. And the treaty says, you're now our allies. Here's the deal. At the moment of conquest, we're going to steal your stuff, take your land. It's going to be rough. But after that, the deal is going to be this. Whenever Rome goes to war, you have to go to war. Um, The footnote here, Rome is at war every year. So Rome is always at war. So you're always at war. You have to supply soldiers for our armies. We don't care how you do it, just that you do it. Um, And in exchange, we protect you. You get a share of the loot when we win. And this is going to be our relationship. And we're not going to impose taxes on you. Because what you're really paying us in is soldiers. And in their equipment and their supplies. And we're not going to interfere with your local government. We don't care how you govern yourselves so long as when we muster armies, your guys show up. And the result then is that all of those expensive layers of bureaucracy are unnecessary. Roman soldiers equip themselves, so you don't need to bother with that. When Rome wants to raise resources for its armies, um, they do have taxation um, to pay for things like the food supplies for the armies. But Roman soldiers... They fight for the honor and glory of Rome. They're conscripted and you barely pay them. It's an expectation of citizenship that you serve. And so Roman soldiers are paid basically just enough to afford to eat. And in an acute twist, the Roman state does issue rations to soldiers because you need to handle that centrally. But when you get paid as a Roman soldier, you're billed for the cost of your meals. So it's like, here is your pathetic pay minus the cost of your food. So you get almost nothing because you're serving for honor and the duty of citizenship. And remember, the soldiers are voters. 
they're serving for a, a republic they view as their own. And so you can ask them to do a lot for basically nothing. Because Rome is at war almost constantly, the average Roman citizen would have served about seven to eight years in the army, um, citizen male. Uh, that wouldn't have been necessarily in one stretch. Um, the Romans prefer to recruit young men, so you become eligible for recruitment at 17. It's a conscription system, so you don't have a choice. Um, and you're probably going to get drafted for seven or eight years across your late teens and early 20s. Mili the burden of military service is so heavy, it deforms Roman marriage practices. Roman women generally marry 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Roman men generally marry... 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, even into their early 30s. Um, and the reason is that nobody wants to marry a guy that's going to go out and die in the army. So Roman men only marry um, after their military service is done. And the sort of genius of the Roman system is that they have that system for their own citizens. But then through their alliances in Italy, they're basically franchising that system in every other community in Italy. And so Roman citizens only make up about two-fifths of every Roman army. The other three-fifths are these allies, and it lets them deploy absolutely spectacular amounts of resources. At the same time, because everyone serves and everyone buys their own equipment, the male population in the countryside consists entirely of battle-hardened veterans who already own their own arms and armor. So if you lose an army, you just call up the next bunch of guys who will arrive with their own equipment ready to go. And you can keep doing that, um, cycling through as necessary. And so the Romans can maintain just staggering military commitments, often – you know, the Romans are often fighting on two, three, four, five fronts at the same time with these different armies. The Roman political system makes that easier, too. The Senate, as I mentioned, the directing body for all of this is a body of 300 former magistrates, former elected officials. So when you serve in a high Roman office, when you're done in office, you go into the Senate. But that means the Senate is a body of former generals and administrators who can be pulled at any time to command one of these armies. So the Romans like, we need to raise another army. Okay, we need someone to command it. The consuls are busy. Well, who was Praetor last year? Pull that guy, give him the job. He has experience. What about last year's consuls? They can do the job. Or the consuls of the year before that, they can do it. Um, and so the Romans don't run out of generals either. And they're able to maintain just this staggering level of military performance with armies that are not only more numerous, but better equipped and have more combat experience um, because Rome is always at war. And so the result is that they are able to, to sweep the table. We've been talking a lot about Carthage because of the five major Mediterranean powers, Carthage is the only one that puts up a decent fight. Um, the Romans managed to crumple the rest in short order after they've defeated Carthage. Um, Carthage is, I will note, also the only power that manages to come close to matching Rome's numbers. Um, maximum Carthaginian military deployments are about 150,000. Um, so the Carthaginians come close. Those are mostly mercenaries. Um, the Carthaginians are hiring anyone in the Western Mediterranean they can get their hands on, mostly from Spain and Gaul. So that would be Spain and France. Those are enthusiastic soldiers, but um, they're not nearly as well equipped as the Romans. 
and commanded by people other than Hannibal Barca, they tend to come off poorly. But Carthage gets closer than anybody else. And we will absolutely have to come back sometime and just go through the Punic Wars. They are insane. Yes. And this is the one thing that I really desperately want to do now because we've been talking so much on this. I'm now officially hooked. So thanks for that. (laughs) Well, good. Hopefully your your listeners are hooked too. I mean, Lord knows we we need it. Um, Classics as a field, the study of the ancient world, is in is in, I'm going to say is in real trouble in both the U.S. and in the U.K. Um, departments are shrinking, departments are closing, so we need all the public support we can get. Exactly, which is why we're here and got you on yeah. to come and do some talking for us. So, yeah. Brett, this has been amazing. Like you said, you need to come back and do the peanut balls. I think this has been so much. There's so much more we can talk. I've a million and one more questions and we could quite easily probably go on for the next hour. And I've been trying to hold it all in rather than be overly excited <laughs> about everything and anything. Question, how do our listeners get hold of you? Yeah, so um, I am on, I'm still going to call it Twitter. I'm on Twitter um, at Brett Devereaux. I am also on Blue Sky at Brett Devereaux. Easy to find. I also have a weekly ancient and military history blog, um, a collection of unmitigated pedantry that is acoup.blog, acoup.blog. Amazing. So go grab the blog, listen to the podcast. We'll get Brett back to talk about the peanut wars. I think we've had such a great time and you've been such a pleasure (laughs) to interview. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was great. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.